We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Thank you so much for tuning into Weird Distractions Podcast. This is a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, eerie folklore tales, urban legends, and conspiracy theories to provide you, and more than likely, what your local on-call surgeon would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week involves the unsolved disappearance of a young Indigenous woman from Watson Lake, Yukon. But before jumping into this case, I'll have to cover a little bit of housekeeping and then I'll fill you all in on what I need a distraction from. Feel free to skip ahead about two to five minutes to get into the main episode if you wish. In terms of housekeeping, there is a new Weird Spam episode out now for the Here for the Weird patrons. This month, I'm joined by the lovely Elise, host of the True Crime Cat Lawyer podcast. Check out www.patreon.com slash weirddistractionspodcast to join this tier and to tune in. In terms of my need for a distraction this week, I would have to say my need for a distraction is my imposter syndrome has really kicked my ass the last couple of days, whether it's been with relationships or with my new job or even with podcasting. I actually, full transparency, before I record this episode, I read a negative review about the show and for some reason my first thought was, okay, quit. Like, you're done. Just don't do it anymore. But since that spiral I had. I've realized that this is where I'm at right now. I'm feeling not great, but you know what? I'm going to keep showing up because I know there are still people out there that are listening. And with this episode in particular, I really want folks to tune in and I really want to share it with you all. So my need for distraction is my imposter syndrome. Again, kicking my ass, but you know what? I'm going to get distracted with you all and learn about this week's episode, and I'm going to remind everyone, including myself, just be kind to yourself. With that said, let's dive into this week's episode. As previously mentioned, this week I'm going to highlight an unsolved disappearance of a young Indigenous woman from Watson Lake, Yukon. Her disappearance echoes similarities to other missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQI plus people cases covered on the show and that have not yet been highlighted. Join me today in learning about Loretta Ann Frank a 19-year-old from the Talton First Nation who hasn't been seen by family and friends since 1989. Due to potential coarse language, distressing topics, and other adult themes that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. Loretta Ann Frank was born sometime in 1970 in Lower Post, British Columbia. Laura Post is an Aboriginal community located on the Alaska Highway 97, and from what I've gathered in my Google Mapsing of the location, it's approximately 20 kilometers south of the Yukon border. 
Loretta, or Laura, as she would sometimes go by, was the youngest of five children and, based on what I gathered online, she was described as being shy in nature. I don't really have a lot of information about her childhood, but what has been shared online is that by the time she was a teenager, Loretta was reportedly diagnosed with schizophrenia. The Mayo Clinic describes schizophrenia as, quote, a serious mental disorder in which people interpret reality abnormally. Schizophrenia may result in some combination of hallucinations, delusions, and extremely disordered thinking and behavior that impairs daily functioning and can be disabling, end quote. It's unclear what symptoms Loretta may have had or specifically her symptoms leading up to and after her diagnosis. Loretta did apparently receive treatment and reportedly met with a psychiatrist once a month. Based on the Canada Unsolved website, sometime in 1986 or 87, Loretta reportedly moved to Watson Lake, Yukon, and lived with one of her brothers and his spouse at the time named Patricia. We'll get to quotes from Patricia in a little bit. Watson Lake, a seemingly described small town, is only 20-ish minutes away from Lower Post, B.C., meaning the move wasn't too far from where she previously was. But, unfortunately, Watson Lake didn't have any established psychiatrists, meaning Loretta's psychiatry-based treatment was now infrequent if it even happened at all. The psychiatry options at the time, and perhaps even now to this day, seem to be on a rotational basis, so They would probably send in various different psychiatrists from time to time. It wouldn't be consistent. It would be all over the place of who is willing and able to go to this location. I'm not an expert in this by any means, shape, or form, but I do understand that this is kind of typical with a lot of northern places in Canada and probably across the world where if you have a very isolated area, you're not going to have a resident specialist all the time. And if you do, you're lucky until that person retires and then it's an uphill battle trying to get people to move out that way. Each time Loretta may have gone into an appointment thinking she was meeting with one doctor, she would end up meeting with another. And thus, she would more than likely have to start all over and explain herself from the beginning. Those that have ever accessed mental health care can probably attest to the discouragement and frustration felt in moments similar to this, where you meet with one person, you develop a rapport with them, and then all of a sudden, the next time you go in, it's someone completely different. Some people may be able to handle this and cope with this, and they're totally fine with it, whereas others, I know like myself, sometimes it's kind of a struggle because you, again, develop a rapport with that person. And you expect to see that person again and not have to retell your story from the beginning. Patricia, who was with Loretta's brother when Loretta moved in with them, recalled the potential lack of resources in a direct quote from a CBC News article. Quote, Laura had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and social services had sort of brought her to us and kind of dropped her off at her door with no support at all. I just feel like Laura fell between the cracks and nobody ever paid any attention. End quote. After one year of calling Watson Lake home, Loretta decided to move 438 kilometers west of Watson Lake to Whitehorse within the Yukon. From my understanding, Whitehorse is a lot bigger of a town, there's more resources, especially in comparison to Watson Lake, which is a lot smaller. Whitehorse's social services seemed to offer a better treatment opportunity for Loretta's mental health needs. It probably seemed like a good move at the time. 
The Canada Unsolved website documented that while at Whitehorse, Loretta lived in an assisted living facility, and reports also claim that while she was in Whitehorse, Loretta had a job. Even though things seemed to be going well in Whitehorse on the outside, Loretta reportedly wasn't happy there. By Thanksgiving weekend in 1988, then 19-year-old Loretta visited her family in Watson Lake and told them how unhappy she was in Whitehorse. Loretta was reportedly so unhappy that she shared with them how she wanted to move back to Watson Lake. Her family apparently responded with their concerns of lack of resources in the Watson Lake and what that would mean if Loretta returned, which is understandable. When a family member is dependent on community resources, you want to make sure that they have options and supports. Now, due to this, Loretta's family supposedly shared their disagreement with her idea of moving back to Watson Lake. I can imagine that maybe they said, look, you know, I understand you're unhappy. Maybe give it a little bit of time in Whitehorse. You know, Watson Lake doesn't have what you need or what you have in Whitehorse. I didn't come across any information indicating how Loretta responded to her family's concerns. I don't know if she was angry with them. I couldn't find that information out. And if I do come across it later on, I will definitely let everybody know. But from my understanding, from what hasn't been published or hasn't been said, I don't think there was a big outburst or a big argument that came after the fact. As the festivities of the weekend were winding down, the writer reportedly returned to Whitehorse, and her family probably thought, okay, great, like, she's going back to Whitehorse, everything should be fine, she'll stay there, she'll continue working, she'll continue living at the assisted facility, everything will be okay. Alas, what they didn't know is that that would be the last time they would ever see her again. Here's where fine details get a bit murky in terms of what transpired next. In late 1988 or early 1989, Loretta is gone. No one has seen or heard from her in quite some time. We're going to get into a little bit more of what transpired after it was discovered that Loretta was missing. But when I say the details are murky, I mean they're really murky. No one really exactly knows when she went missing. I came across one article that said, It wasn't until November 15th of 1989 that she went missing. But then most other articles or resources I came across noted that it was after that Thanksgiving weekend or it was early in 1989. So there's a lot of discrepancies in terms of the specific date. Her friends had apparently disclosed to her family that she may have been dating a man from Haines, Alaska prior to her disappearance, but no one seemed to really know much about this guy. And Unfortunately, there was really no information publicly stated about him. It's not really clear who he was, how long they had been dating for. Like, all of those details just aren't known or they weren't publicly shared with anyone, really. And to this day, it just seems very odd that no one really knew him. But, I mean, it was also the time of, you know, no social media or anything to that nature. So we didn't have those privileges, for lack of better terms, of being able to just creep his profile to figure out who is this guy and is Loretta with him? 
I will also mention that there is and was this theory tossed out by Loretta's friends that perhaps Loretta had moved to Haynes to be with this mystery man. I can imagine that the fear and worry about Loretta's well-being and her whereabouts grew each day, and by early 1989, her family began searching for her. One of their first steps in searching for Loretta was by reaching out to the local police force. However, the family was met with more stress and less help. There are two main reports when it comes to what transpired next with police. The Royal Canadian Mountain Police, aka the RCMP, know that they didn't receive any notification of Loretta's disappearance until 1993, whereas accounts claim that Loretta's family went to the police in early 1989 to report Loretta missing, only to be met with dismissal from the RCMP claiming that Loretta was a, quote, runaway. So we already have conflicting reports, and if that's not frustrating enough, just wait, it gets worse. Loretta's case didn't officially open with the RCMP until 1994, a whopping five years after her suspected disappearance in 1989. In those five years, evidence could have been lost, following up on leads would probably be more difficult, and in one ABC News article, it was highlighted that people's memories could just start to fade as time goes on. And it's not just the memories of family and friends who knew the missing person, it's also eyewitnesses who could have saw that person or had heard something at the time of the disappearance. That ABC News article focuses on how the first 72 hours in a missing person's case are the most important. As we know, though, when it comes to Loretta's case, those 72 hours were way gone by the time that police actually put boots to the ground and went to go look for her. The sooner the report, the better. However, not every case follows this kind of new age mentality, especially when it involves two groups of people, being the RCMP and Loretta's family, who were identified Indigenous folks. Being as I'm not Indigenous, I don't feel as though I'm the most appropriate person to explain the intricacies or pure emotion of why there may be distrust from Indigenous people towards the RCMP or cops in general. I can comment on what has been documented online in terms of that relationship, which will barely scratch the surface, but I will still mention it at least. According to the Journal of Community Safety and Well-Being in a direct quote, Indigenous peoples have had a long and difficult relationship with Canada's justice system. In 2017 to 2018, Indigenous people accounted for 30% of all admissions to custody and 24% of the federal corrections population. In provincial and territorial corrections, Indigenous peoples are overrepresented in arrests and convictions for serious offenses. In 2018, they were involved in homicides at a rate nearly eight times greater than non-Indigenous peoples, end quote. Disproportionately blamed in comparison to other races, on top of general systemic racism for generations mixed in with discriminatory policies and practices, have created a mistrust for both Indigenous folk towards and from police, according to the Statistics Canada website. When it comes to specifically missing and murdered First Nations women, girls, and 2SLGBTQI plus people, that's a whole other layer of injustice. Tying this into Loretta, we have a younger Indigenous woman who has a mental health diagnosis in a time where mental health wasn't as accepting as it is today, at least in comparison, it wasn't as talked about back then, who all of a sudden is missing with no trace and police who aren't really on the ball to find her based on a majority of the reports. Loretta's family may have seen the writing on the wall as well when dealing with police. 
Terry Brown, chief of the Tallton First Nations, knew Loretta and her family and echoed the frustrations that the Frank family had when they went to the RCMP. Terry was quoted in a CBC article stating, quote, It was without a doubt that Loretta was missing, and expressed how the Frank family even looked for Loretta themselves after police were of no immediate help. That CBC article brings up how Loretta's case connects with the overall theme of how missing and murdered First Nations women, girls, and Two-Spirit folks are treated by law enforcement, among other bodies of government. Part of me wonders if Loretta had been a white, middle-class, or upper-class blonde girl, maybe she would have had way more media coverage, time, and effort from officials into finding her and perhaps not been classified as, oh, just another runaway by police when she initially went missing. At the end of the day, Loretta is and was still a person who deserves as much media attention as the next person. Unfortunately, though, that has not been given. Focusing back on the case itself and the finer details, to this day, there seems to be no publicly known leads or clues. Loretta was approximately 19 years old when she disappeared, and, as mentioned earlier, she would sometimes go by the name Laura. Before her disappearance, Loretta was known to have a slender build, weighing approximately 99 pounds, and stood at 5 feet 8 inches tall. She has been described as having brown hair, which was shoulder length, and having brown eyes. In the only photo I could really find of Loretta online, you'll see that she wore these big glasses, which most resources noted were prescription. Due to no further information being found online during my research, I'm going to wrap up this week's highlight of Loretta and fill you in on who to contact if you have any information regarding her whereabouts. The disappearance of Loretta Ann Frank echoes similarities to other missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQI plus people that have been discussed on the show. At the end of the day, Loretta, like others, deserves their own energy, time, money, and work into finding out what happened to them and where they may be today. My continued hope in covering cases like these is to shine a spotlight on them. No, it's not my job to do it, but because I have a mic, cover true crime cases, and a mini platform over here, I want to give some kind of light to cases like Loretta's because, again, she's a human, and I personally believe she and other people deserve that. If you or someone you know has any information regarding Loretta's whereabouts or what may have transpired back in 1988 or 1989, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Again, that's 1-800-222-8477. I don't want to promote any false hope here, but if she is still alive, Loretta would only be 53 years old, which is not that old at all. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's episode over on the podcast social media accounts or by email. Let me know what you think. And please let me know if there are any other missing and murdered First Nations, women, girls, two-spirit people, cases that I could cover on the show in the future. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming Weird Distractions or any podcast on a podcast platform that allows you to leave a rating or review, please consider leaving a rating or review because that is the best way and 
the cheapest way, because it's free, to support your favorite podcasts. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an episode is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find Weird Distractions over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and on TikTok. Do you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month? Why not join one of two tiers over on the Weird Distractions Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content, such as bonus episodes and bonus series, such as the Even Weirder series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early and ad-free access to regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to www.patreon.com slash weirddistractionspodcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Susan, Jennifer, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you and appreciate your support so much. Without you, Weird Distractions may not be what it is today. Lastly, I want to hear from you. I would love to collect your stories of paranormal encounters, too close to home true crime cases, maybe even some weird MLM experiences, or maybe just in general weird things that you've encountered so that I can continue to release the Listener Distractions series. And you might be tuning in for the first time and you might not know what I'm talking about. This is a series that Christy and I originally started where we would read your personal experiences on air. If you have a story you want to share, please email me at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections needed to be made after today's episode, please let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.